Normally we start the uh, Parsha by saying Boker Tov, good morning. But this week we start by saying uh, Erev Tov and good evening. I want to thank you for coming in person as we've uh, spent the last several days, I think most people lacking productivity. If they could measure the dip in productivity in anticipation of a hurricane, in addition to all the uh, time that's spent, but it's hard to focus and accomplish anything. So the fact that we're using our time to study Torah in this uh, month of Elul is a wonderful thing. And ultimately, or most importantly, we thank Hashem that at this moment it seems that we've been spared the brunt of the storm. And uh, we're very, very deeply and profoundly grateful to Him. We daven to the people of the Bahamas who've been devastated. We daven for the people who remain in the path of uh, this hurricane that everyone should be spared and safe and secure. I want to thank the sponsors of the Parsha class series for the whole year, Becky and Avi Katz, in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lila Nishmas, David ben Menachem Manish, whose neshama should have an aliyah. This week we will read Parshas Shoftim. And Moshe is continuing his monologue, and through it he's shaping and molding the Jewish people as we'll enter the land. And he's trying to build an ideal, an ideal of a Jewish people living the rules of our sacred Torah within our homeland. Those three things in combination were designed for us to be a microcosm for the world to see and to learn and to be able to emulate. And so part of that is our Parsha, Parsha Shoftim. Shoftim v'shotrim titein l'chol b'chol sh'arecha, sh'ashem alokecha nasein l'chol l'shvatecha, v'shavtu asa'am mishpat tzedek. We're about to get into, the Parsha is going to transition into entering the land of Israel. But before we talk about entering the land of Israel, first we establish some of the rules and the expectations of a system of justice. And Rav Shechter points out, in the relatively recent Sefer of Shechter on a Parsha, he emphasizes that the connection between entering the land and setting up a judicial system within the land and the emphasis on tzedek tzedek tirdof, the notion of justice and righteousness, is because the fulfillment of that ideal of being a people who are living in a way for the world to see and to emulate includes our leadership representing the ideals of justice and of righteousness. We are to be, in the words of Yeshayahu Anavi. It's not, some people think this belongs to other denominations, but it's the words of Yeshayahu Anavi, in Or Lagoyim, a light onto nations. When others look at us, they should say, there are a people who place a focus who's central to our life and lifestyle is a focus on justice and a focus on righteousness. And so the Jewish people in Israel were under a microscope. And in Israel, even more than anywhere else, the Jewish people are expected to live a level of justice and of righteousness. And one can look at what's taking place in Israel. Israel which has placed the president in jail, Israel which has placed the prime minister in jail, Israel which has a chief rabbi in jail. You could either tear Korea and say how terrible, and it is terrible, that the highest levels of leadership should be so corrupt. On the other hand, how extraordinary and remarkable that Israel holds accountable its highest level of leaders. That nobody, <coughs> excuse me, nobody is beyond reproach, Nobody is above the law, and that's what the beginning of our Pasha is emphasizing and is teaching us. We have to have judges, and we have to have police people at all of our gates. Of course, famously, homiletically, this is always interpreted to mean, we read it, Davka during the month of Elul, all of the gates means our eyes, our ears, our mouth, the gates to our soul. We have to be judicious in what images and what ideas we imbibe, we absorb within ourselves, what we expose ourselves and our families to. We need to set in all of our gates. 
Because we're enjoined not to pervert justice or to show favoritism. Of course, never to accept a bride. Bribery blinds the eyes of the wise and it perverts justice. We gave a whole class earlier this year, I think on Shavuos, about protexia and bribery following the scandal that happened in universities this year that tragically the same phenomenon happens within our Torah institutions. If you make a check out with enough zeros, you can get people in who otherwise weren't supposed to gain entry. If you dedicate the right space, then you can have access that you otherwise shouldn't have. And we went through several, many, many tshuvas, Rav Zilberstein and others, on the principle of protectia. If you write the biggest check, if you know the right person, you could get your grandmother into the assisted living facility. Is it appropriate to jump the list? If you know the right person, you can get, God forbid, but one sibling, your cousin, a kidney, and skip the list. What are the ethics of using protectia? Is protectia not in itself a form of bribery? And bribery is something which is so forbidden that it's not only forbidden because it perverts justice, as the Torah tells us, it perverts justice, then of course bribery is forbidden, not because of bribery, but because you perverted justice. So the Gemara concludes, even when you haven't perverted justice, it's still forbidden. So let's say you try to bribe the admissions committee, and they still reject your child, and they just keep the money. They haven't perverted judgment or justice by accepting the bribe, but it's still something which is forbidden. We have a language, Adon Din Emes Amito. Gemara in the beginning, Sanhedrin says that a judge is responsible. The mandate of a judge is to arrive at the truth in the truth. What is the truth of the truth? It means that a pure truth, an unadulterated truth, a truth which is not corrupt by outside influence of any sort, even if it doesn't change your ultimate decision, it can't help but change your decision. Maybe you actually rejected the kid because he comes from such a family which was willing to bribe you. So your ethics are such that you're willing to keep the bribe because you're not the one applying to get in, but you reject the, maybe you reject the student, the applicant, because they try to bribe you, it says something about them. So in some way or another, it has an influence and because of that, shochad is something which is forbidden. We have to pursue justice. That's what Shechter was talking about. Here we have a connection between pursuing justice so that we live and we inherit the land. What does inheriting the land have to do with a judicial, a just judicial system? And the answer is we only merit the land. We only deserve to have a land. We should only be in a position of influence to the rest of the world if we're willing to use that position in a righteous way that people see the way that we are, the way that we are living. The um, Sefer Bahir, the Ramban quotes the Sefer Bahir who interprets this Pasuk, that if you judge yourself, Laman so that you live, means we're required to judge ourselves, introspection. People like to live mindless lives with no sense of, of uh, retrospection, no sense of of introspection, no sense of self-reflection. People just want to live mindless lives where we're not accountable and there are no consequences and we do whatever we want and whatever gives us pleasure. So the Torah here is telling us not only in the formal sense of a community and a people, but even on the individual level of to really be alive is to have a mindfulness where we're constantly evaluating and reflecting on our lives 
We're constantly trying to improve ourselves and be the very best people that we can. Let's examine for a moment this expression, Sedek Sedek Tirdof. In last year's parasha class, we examined that expression. We saw the Nitziv's interpretation. We saw the Medrash interpretation. We saw very, very beautiful ideas, which we're not going to repeat. I want to include some new ones. And namely, begin with the rubber. Basalavechik said, why the rep- repetition? Why the redundancy? Sedek Sedek Tirdof. Last year, we saw the Medrash. Sedek Bit Sedek Tirdof. Don't just have the ends of righteousness. You need a righteous means to achieve a righteous ends. Sometimes people fight for a cause, and the cause is a righteous cause, but they cut corners, and they are dishonest, and they're manipulative, and they're corrupt in the pursuit of that noble ends. Not only must our ends be noble, but tzedek bit tzedek tirdof, the means to achieve the noble ends, the means itself needs to be noble as well. But the Rav gives a different interpretation. According to the Ramban, writes the Rav, the repetition of the word tzedek suggests there are two modes of justice. How could that be? Isn't justice by definition mean an absolute truth? What is just? What is correct? What is right? What is righteous? The first form of tzedek is represented by the natural law. In Kabbalah, this is known as malchus. God's revelation through the law of nature, his primordial will represented by the laws of chemistry, physics, and biology. As we are witnessing, and please God, we will be spared the brunt of, these immutable laws are non-negotiable. The laws of science are non-negotiable. You can't have a conversation with gravity. Can't have a conversation with a hurricane. The laws of physics, biology, chemistry, these are the God's uh, revelation through nature. And that's a form of tzedek, which is Hashem's righteousness in the way He constructed the world and in the way He programmed the world and the way He set that world in motion with His immutable laws. That's one level of an absolute truth of a tzedek, which is an absolute righteousness. But the form of tzedek, this form of tzedek, is imperfect. Because the Medrash recounts an exchange of opinions among various angels. The angels had a debate whether man should have been created. How do we know God consulted with the angels? Because the Torah, way back in Sefer Bereshis, when Hashem is creating the world, He turns to the angels and He says, Nase Adam B'tzalminu. Let's make man Nase with a Nun. Let us, in the plural, make man. Rashi then is already bothered. What do you mean, let us make man? Does Hashem have partners? Does Hashem need help? Does Hashem require support? What do you mean, Nasa? let us? And Rashi tells us that Hashem did something extraordinary. In order to express humility, He consulted with the angels, Kiviyachal, as if consulted with the angels to say, what do you think? Should we make man? Good idea, bad idea? How should we make man? What do you think? He took an enormous risk when he did it. And Rashi tells us, because he opened the door for heretics. And in fact, Kachava, Today we have Bible critics and we have heretics who read the Torah and say, look at the language, Nasa Adam B'tzameinu, clearly there's more than one God, because God says in the plural, let us make man. But that was a risk Hashem was willing to take in order to exhibit and in order to model the humility of not arrogantly acting like we have all the answers and we do everything on our own, but even the highest authority, which is a theme of our parsha, Mirza Hashem will get to, we're usually not up against a hard stop. With Mincha, we're up against a hard stop when you give the Parsha class in this slot. So hopefully we'll get to it. But one of the themes of our Parsha is the notion of authority, is the notion of power, the potential for power to corrupt, and how we try to fight that. What's the antidote to the fact that power so often corrupts? So Hashem is trying to model. The antidote is a humility. You say, Na'ase Adam B'tzalmenu. I'll tell you something interesting. I once read an article Harvard Business Review about Abraham Lincoln's most famous speech. What was his most famous speech? The Gettysburg Address. 
Now, when we hear the words Gettysburg Address, we usually assume that must have been like a Shabbat Shuvah Russia. That was a good hour 20, hour and a half, who knows how long it was, a State of the Union. And there must have been some Gesundheit Russia that Abraham Lincoln gave the Heilige Gettysburg Address. The Heilige Gettysburg Address was literally a few minutes long. You're looking at me like I should learn from that. I understand, I got it. The message, message uh, he didn't have sore sheets. He did not give out sore sheets with the Gettysburg Address. He also didn't have a sponsor probably for it. So it was only a few minutes long. Very powerful message, a uh, oratory message, okay, heard. Probably not to be followed, but heard. But Abraham Lincoln did something else in that speech, and this was the insight of the Harvard Business Review article. What Abraham Lincoln did, which was different from his predecessors, and I would say very different from his successors, if we look around today, Abraham Lincoln was one of the only presidents who in the Gettysburg Address, instead of saying, I, 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 said, we, we, we. He painted a vision for a nation. And he didn't talk about I, and I, and I think, and I've worked hard, and I have, and I put in place, and I will. He said, we, and we, and we, and we. And you know, when you say we, this was the conclusion of the article, which was trying to extrapolate and to learn a lesson of public speaking is, when you say I, the audience is disconnected. When you say we, you've now engaged, you've invited the audience in to be a partner, to have a, a stake in whatever it is, the vision that you're painting. So Kivyacha Kodesh Baruch says to the audience, he doesn't say, I will now make man. He says, Naaseh, we, let us, make man. Let us make man. And when he did, he turned to the angels and he consulted with them. And the Medrash of Rabbah tells us of the exchange of the opinions. What happened? The angel representing loving kindness. I read you the Medrash. When Baruch came to create man, the angels divided into groups. They divided into parties. The Chaburos Chaburos. Mehem Omrim Al Yivra. Mehem Omrim Yivra. So some said, don't create him, it's a mistake. He's fallible, and he's gonna make mistakes, and he's going to not represent you well. So why are you going to create him? It's not going to end well, don't create man. And others said, create man. Okay, create man, sorry, I was avoiding a sneeze. Create man, what were they arguing about? This is the Pasuk in Tehillim. Chesed ve'emes nifgashu, tzedek v'shalom, Nashaku. The Pasuk in Tehillim Pehei says, Love and truth met, justice and peace kissed. Chesed Omer Yivra, Shugomel Chasadim. Thank you. Chesed said, Create man, because man is an engine of Chesed. They're going to be a Chavar Kaddish and a Chesed community. They're going to make meals for the bereaved and meals for the new mothers. They're going to hang shutters and they're going to lend generators and they're going to give out flashlights. They're a machine for Chesed. And therefore, you must create man. Emes Omer Al Yivra Shakula Shkarim. Emes stood up and said to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, "Don't create man. Have you seen man? Have you looked at social media? What a bunch of exaggerators, liars, fakers, frauds, phonies! Don't make man. Nothing they say is true. Every story they tell is exaggerated. They're constantly trying to be some, look like something they're not." Tzedek Omer Yivri Shuos at Stakos. Tzedek stands up and says. He writes a check to Tzedakah. Look how many organizations are supported. Look how many organizations were founded by your people. Create man. Shalom Omer Al Yivra. Dukule Ketata. Shalom Peace stood up and said, no, no, no. Have you looked at the people? If you create them, all they'll do is fight. All they're going to do is attention and conflict. Don't create them. Ma'asa Kaddish Baruch So now you're a Kaddish Baruch And what's the score? Two against two. What are the teams here? You've got Chesed and Emes. Tzedek and Shalom. 
Chesed saying create, Emma saying don't create. Tzedek saying create, and Shalom saying don't create. What does the Kaddish Baruch Hu do? It's a two on two. How do you decide? Ma'asa Kaddish Baruch Hu natal emes ve'shlicha la'aretz. Kaddish Baruch Hu took emes, the concept of truth, and he threw it to the ground. So Pasuk and Daniel says, v'tashlich emes artza. Amru l'malachai asharis, amru l'malachai asharis, v'nei Kaddish Baruch Hu, ribona olol, ma'ata mevazeh, tachsis al tichsi yashacha. Ta'la emes min ha'aretz. Ha'adahu dechsev, emes me'aretz titzmach. Let truth rise from the earth, as the Pasuk says, truth will grow from the ground. So what is going on in this Medrash? Kesh Baruch Hu is, he is uh, asking the advice of the angels. Should he make man? And you have this battle two against two. And because he's undecided, two on two is an even number. So in order to make the odds in favor of one, Kesh Baruch Hu takes MS and throws it to the ground. What in the world is going on? So Rebbe suggested the following. Conciliation between litigants derives from a desire to maintain peace despite the fact that the litigants' positions are mutually exclusive. There's an aspect of sheker falsehood on the part of one who compromises for the sake of peace. Yet if men exclusively exemplified the attribute of MS, people would be in constant conflict. Absolute peace and absolute truth cannot coexist in this world because insistence on absolute truth precludes peaceful coexistence. Truth often gets in the way of peace. In order to have real peace in a family, in a business, among partners, in a community, among friends, in order to really have a genuine peace, not a fake peace or a false peace, but a real peace. In order to have a real peace, you can't have a real adherence to the truth. Someone's compromising. Someone's giving in. Someone's looking the other way. Someone is being flexible. So the two can't coexist at the same time. So Hashem resolved the dispute by separating Emmets from Shalom. To guarantee harmony in this world, we must accept the principle of compromise as opposed to absolute emes. So Bessalavitchik is suggesting, based on this medrash, that's the pshat in tzedek, tzedek tirdof. We have two types of tzedek. We have an absolute truth, a justice which is absolute truth. What does it say in the law books? What is most righteous? What is most true? And then we have a tzedek which is pshara, which is compromise. In fact, our bate din today, if people have a monetary dispute and they bring it before a beisdin to adjudicate, the beisdin is empowered to do, the Beisdin actually turns to the litigants and asks, do you want a Beisdin of Din? Or do you want a Beisdin of Pshara? Do you want the Beisdin to adjudicate based on truth? Hard, strict, rigid rules of truth? Or should the Beisdin approach it with the rules of Pshara with an eye on compromise? And what Salvechik is suggesting is that by definition when you compromise, you are distorting the truth. Because one is right and one is wrong. And when you try to achieve and arrive at a compromise, you know what a compromise is? I too often find myself mediating business situations, often marriage or divorce situations, and I always describe at the beginning of a mediation session that the definition of a compromise is something neither party is happy about, but both parties can live with. Neither is going to walk away happy. If the expectation is you're going to walk away happy, then don't bother walking in. Both parties will be unhappy, but both parties can live with because neither feels they're really getting what's just, what's right, what's true. By definition, a compromise does not include absolute truth. And we have those two forms. And you can wonder, how can we ever endorse a Beisden of Pshara? If a Beisden of compromise, if when the Beisden endorses compromise, now when we say compromise, by the way, it doesn't mean you say yours 100, I say yours zero, so we say 50, and we call it even. Compromise doesn't mean that we just always go halfway down the middle 
And that's the compromise. We have what's called Pshara Karov Ladin. We try to find a compromise, but that close to honoring what is most just, what is most true. But still it includes a little bit of a compromise. Because often, the way you can arrive at a conclusion that neither party is happy with, but both can live with, is when each feels it got at least a small victory. So you need to give at least a small victory in order to arrive at a compromise that the two parties can live with. And in order to arrive at that small victory, someone is going to feel that absolute truth was not served. That's the concept of apshara. That's the second form of tzedek. So says the Rav, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. There's two types of tzedek. There's the ultimate tzedek, the highest truth. And then there's the tzedek, there's the righteousness of pshara. That sometimes pursuing the compromise is what's righteous. I'll tell you an amazing kotzker. The Heilige Kotzker says, what does it mean? Because Baruch Hu took Emes and he threw it to the ground. He could have thrown Shalom to the ground. Because remember, it was Tzedek and Chesed against Emes v'Shalom. So why did he throw Emes to the ground? Why didn't he throw Shalom to the ground? Why didn't God get rid of peace? Why did he get rid of truth? So the simple understanding is because Shalom is the highest value. We don't have a vessel that can hold bracha. The greatest blessing that there is is peace and harmony. Hashem is willing to even allow His own name to be erased for the sake of preserving peace and harmony in the case of Anisha Sota. So therefore He got rid of MS, MS He's willing to compromise on. But that's not a simple answer. True, He's willing to compromise His own name for Shalom. But what is His name? When Hashem signs His name, what does He write? MS. His name is Emes, because Baruch Hu is truth. So he is truth, and when he throws truth to the ground, isn't he forfeiting, isn't he compromising his very essence, who he is? He is truth. So why didn't he throw Shalom to the ground? Better to have friction and conflict, but at least stand for truth. Why did he throw Emes to the ground instead of Shalom? So the Kotzker said, an Emes that insists that there not be Shalom is not Emes. That's why he threw it to the ground. Because when Emes said, don't create them, the Shakranam, they're liars. And when Emes tries to advocate for destruction, when Emes tries to advocate for marginalizing or judging or dismissing, when Emes tries to say about the Jewish people, they're a bunch of liars, he threw it to the ground because that's not real Emes. It wasn't that he threw Emes to the ground. Then we'd have our question. Emes is his signature. It's he threw it to the ground because he concluded it wasn't real Emes. So this is Rabbi Soloveitchik's beautiful interpretation of tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. That tzedek means uh, one tzedek is the highest level, the absolute truth, and the other tzedek is the tzedek of pshara. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetkin and Emes Liyakov also deals with this question of this medrash and how to understand it and why he threw Emes. And he writes the following, Ulefichach nearly levar divrei ha-medrash ba'ofen pashit. Ta emes ha-pshuta amra sha'adam humale shakaram. Emes said that man is filled with lies. And how is man filled with lies? Because Emes approached the world and understood that you can't have two opinions and they could both be true. There has to be an absolute truth, an objective truth. So one has to be right and one is wrong. One likes chocolate ice cream, the other likes vanilla ice cream. Someone's right, someone's got to be wrong. Emes demands that there's a right and there's a wrong. It's binary. There are choices that we make. That's the Havamin of the Medrash, says Rav Yaakov. So 
So Kesh Baruch Shalom was arguing. We have two different opinions. They're arguing. Ashkenaz, Sfard, Young, Old, Republican, Democrat. We have so many different opinions. Gun laws, taxes, abortion. We have so many different opinions. Yankees, Red Sox. That's MS. That's not... Uh, <laughs> we have so many different opinions. So Shalom said, how can we have peace when you have so many different opinions? Let them all rally behind one opinion, and then we'll have Shalom. MS similarly said, there's got to be one absolute and one objective truth. How can you have so many opinions? So Ma'as HaKadosh Baruch what did he do? Ba'os HaShahish Lecha MS Arza. Klomar, Chidesh HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Chidesh Godel Binyan MS. Sha MS Hine Yachasis V'lo Hachlatis. V'tia MS Arzis, and that's what it means, MS Arza. Sha Me'az Yuchal Adam Liyos Amitis Lefim Adrei Gosso V'asa Gosso. MS Me'eretz Titzmach. It means that MS doesn't exist in the heavens where there's an absolute truth. It's Me'eretz Titzmach. It comes up from the ground. It blossoms from the earth where we have a multiplicity of opinions. That just like people don't look alike and just like our DNA is not alike, similarly our personalities, our perspectives, our opinions are, are equal but not necessarily uniform or alike. So the Havamina, the reason MS and Shalom protested is because they assumed there can and be only one absolute truth. And that's what Akash Baruch Hu threw Emes to the ground to say, no, it's not an Emes that descends from heaven, an absolute truth, an authoritative truth. It's an Emes that blossoms and grows from the earth. It's an Emes that sprouts with different species and manifests itself in different ways with different people. And then you can have Shalom when you realize that there is something called subjective truth, not absolute truth. And we have, we've given an entire Shiram on this, but it's what we call Elu Ve'elu Divrei Elohim Chaim. You could have Be'isamu Be'ishamai and they're both right. One says brain death is death. One says, not Pesel Beshama, you could have modern postkim. One says brain death is death, and it's time to bury the person. You're violating Bizoya Mace by keeping them alive, harvest the organs. And the other says brain death is life. And if you remove a machine, you're murdering them. So who's right? I always give this example of Elu Elu because it is the greatest stakes, the highest stakes. It's either murder or it's Bizoya Mace, or you're, you can either be saving a life and you're neglecting it through harvesting organs, or you're murdering someone alive by removing a machine. So what's at stake is the highest, is the greatest. And yet, who's right? Yes, both. So an emes that descends from Shemayim, they can't both be right. But an, eretz, but an emes me'eretz tetzmach, that different kind of emes says Rabbi Yaakov, that you can have shalom, you can have peace between them when they recognize each of their right, each of them being legitimate each of them being a legitimate opinion. So all of this is in Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, the two types of Tzedek. Okay, let's continue. The Parsha continues, and Asherah compares a dishonest judge to, a, um, to an uh, idolatrous tree. It tells us about a blemished sacrifice, the death penalty for somebody who worships idols. We have the, um, the prohibition of the rebellious elder. Ki polim ladan. Famous Vilna Gon about the different areas of halacha, Yerodeya, Evan Ezer, Choshen Mishpat, all included in that Pasuk, and how you have to go to the judge in your day in order to come to a conclusion. So the Pasuk here says, the Shamarta la'asos kechol asher yorucha. Observe according to the way they instruct you. You have to follow the way that they instruct you. This is the Torah source for the notion of Yerucha, kechol asher yorucha, the way they instruct you, losasur, don't neglect or deviate from the way Chazal tell us what to do, right or left, this is the idea of a Mesora, that we have Bali Mesora, that we have an authentic chain that transmits the will of Hashem from generation to generation, that it's not, um, not everyone has equal right 
to draw conclusions about halacha or about Torah, but a person has to be qualified, and they have to be a link in that chain. Basalavitchik writes, the authority to legislate was not given to the prophets, but to the sages, the Balei Amasora. A prophet can legislate only when he's part of the fellowship of Chochmei Amasora, of whom the Torah writes, you shall not divert Would there be a prophet outside of the Chochmei Amasora, he would not be able to legislate with regard to even one iota. This is expressed clearly by the Rambam. Mitzvahs midivrei Kabbalah, commandments of received tradition were ordained by those Chachmei Amasora who were at the same time prophets. But Mitzvahs midivrei Sofrim, commandments ordained by the sages were introduced by the Chachmei Amasora who did not belong to the community of prophets. So the Rav continues here, I'll just tell it to you outside. He says something amazing. This Losasar, which is the Torah source for the obligation to listen to the rabbis. Why? We have a whole area of Jewish law called Mitzvahs Midrabonon. In Smichas Chavar, we're learning all about Bishal Akam and Pas Akam. Why do I have to listen to the rabbi's rules about Bishal Akam and Pas Akam? Who gave them authority? Why do I have to keep Hanukkah or observe Purim? Why do I have to observe the laws of Muktza? So much of what is familiar to us as vibrant Jewish life today is very different than the way our ancestors lived who only followed biblical law. In post-Talmudic times, the fact that we daven, Anshay Knesset Sagadola gave us a Shemona Esrei, we have to say three times a day, the Matbeah of Tefillah, so much of what we take for granted as, as, as a rigorous <coughs> religious life really is from the rabbis. Who gave them the authority? Who gave them the authority? The answer is the Torah. Here, last year in the Parsha class, we talked about this. In the famous Ramban, Rambam discussion, if following the rabbis is really a biblical law, then every mitzvah d'rabbanon should be a mitzvah d'araisa. So why do we say suffix d'araisa l'chumra? When you have doubt on a biblical law, you're strict. And when you have doubt on a rabbinic law, you could be lenient. Isn't every rabbinic law really a biblical law? We spoke about that. We spoke about that last year. But for this year, what I want to emphasize is something fantastic. I have an obligation of Talmud Torah. We're going to talk about it in a moment with the king. We have a mitzvah. We have an obligation of Talmud Torah, of studying Torah. So let's say I open a Chumash. Clearly, I'm fulfilling the mitzvah. I'm fulfilling the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, of learning Torah. And I open Torah and I study Torah. You can argue when I open Mesech Shabbos and I'm learning the Lamites Malachos. I'm learning about prohibitions that are explicit in the Torah. Not all 39 explicit, only one is explicit, but the category of 39 is explicit in the Torah. And I'm learning how to not violate Torah law. That's a kiyom, a fulfillment of Talmud Torah. But when I open Meseches Megillah and I'm studying the story of Purim, shouldn't that be Bittal Torah? I'm learning about a rabbinic holiday. When I'm learning the laws of Bishalakim, Sunday mornings, we have a phenomenal large group sitting and poring over the Shulchan Arach and Nosekel and learning the minutia of Bishalakim. Wouldn't it be a better use of our time to learn about, not Bishalakim, let's learn about Basar Bachalov. Meat and milk is a biblical law. Bishalakim is a rabbinic law. Isn't it a violation? Isn't it a bit of Torah? Are we wasting our time? Wouldn't we achieve more learning? And the answer is no. Basalavichik emphasized, one who studies the laws of Mukta or Megillah fulfills the obligation of Talmud Torah just as well as one who studies the laws of Karbanos. There's no advantage to biblical law as opposed to the very servant with regard to their status as a Cheftzah Shal Torah. In fact, this is the basis of the Mitzvah Sasur, on which all the rabbinic legislation is founded. The halachas innovated by the rabbis combine to form one entity with the halachas that are recorded in the Torah itself. And therefore, the ruling of Bezdin regarding rabbinic legislation takes effect on a Torah level. In other words, once the Torah authorizes the rabbis to legislate law, it raises the level of their legislation to be Torah law, so that when we study it, we're studying Torah law. It's something incredible. It's something extraordinary. 
So these are the Bali Masoda who in every generation are empowered, who bear the awesome responsibility to analyze and investigate the issues of that generation and to arrive at what the law is. We're going to talk about and sit snippets momentarily. We're up to Dor Lador, Shabach Masach. We're up to the fourth sentence of Ashrei, Dor Lador. Here we say generation to generation. As opposed to Amalek, we say that Amalek wants to attack Dor Dor. There's no Lamed. What's the difference between Dor Lidor and Dor Dor is entirely the difference between the philosophy of Amalek and our philosophy. Stay tuned for Siddur Snippets in a moment for the rest of that. Let's move over to the king. The parasha then tells us the obligation. When you get to the land that Hashem gives you, you're going to inherit it, inhabit it. And you're going to say, And this is very prescient. It really predicts exactly what's going to happen and say for Shmuel. When the people, HaKadosh Baruch doesn't come and say it's time for a king, the people initiate and say they're interested in a king. And Hashem, through Shmuel, reacts very harshly, which when you learn Sefer Shmuel, you're bothered by why the harsh response or reaction to the Jewish people is asking for a king. Isn't it exactly what God here ordains as a mitzvah? Didn't they just pursue what itself is a mitzvah? It all has to do with the timing. Learn it when you get to Sefer Shmuel. So here the Torah says, Som tasim alecha melech. We have a place, a king over ourselves. The Sifri famously says, Melech velo malka. Positions of authority are reserved for men, not for women. Maybe not politically correct, but it represents the truth of Torah. And this is quoted lahalacha by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and by Rabbi Soloveitchik. Rabbi Soloveitchik was more opposed to female presidents of shuls than Rabbi Moshe and others because Rabbi Soloveitchik had a very, um, had a very, literal understanding of this Sifri, halachically, that tasim malka, that positions of surara, positions of authority, not because a woman's not smart enough or qualified enough, she's more than a man for all of those things, but it means that that position often means having to do things which we don't want a woman to have to compromise her feminine quality to have to do those things. So there's a division of roles, melech below malka, and that informs questions of, can women serve as shul presidents and the like, a halachic topic way beyond the scope of our time today. But here the Torah makes a fantastic, fantastic comment. It says, Tom tazim melech, Hashem Hashem's going to appoint who that king is. And if I ask you, what's the king's job description? So, maybe ceremonial, symbolic, in England today, that's all it is. A real king leads people, and legislates law. A real king leads people out to war. He's the commander-in-chief. He declares war, leads in battle. A real king bears the responsibility for foreign policy, taxes, maintaining order, capital punishment, pardoning offenses. In fact, you make a bracha. There's a bracha that the rabbis wrote. When you meet a king, you make a bracha. And there's a question today. When you meet the president, do you say this bracha? There's a big literature. We've given a shir on this. Do you make a bracha when you meet the president today? So according to many poskim, what authority does the king have that demands a bracha? What is the power that one is, is making contact with that would make a bracha? Life and death. The fact that the king can call for someone's head is life and death. So maybe when you meet the president, the president can't put someone to death, but the president can take someone off death row. So maybe that is enough of an authority to make the bracha. Most posts can say today you make the bracha without shame and malchus, without using Hashem's name. So the king has all these powers that we understand, that we, uh, that we would guess. Indeed, the Rambam acknowledges the king has to concern himself with national security and with national interests. The ultimate goal, the central goal of a king is mishpat, 
is to maintain the law and order, a law and order king, and Milchamos, to lead out in battle, to protect and secure the people who he represents. But the Rambam then lists another responsibility of the king, which is shocking. We would never think it's a responsibility of our leaders, and it doesn't seem to be a behavior of our leaders today. In the third parak of Hilchas Malachim, the Rambam writes the following: Ye osek b'Torah utzarcha Yisro bayom of alayla shnemar v'haisa imo v'karabo kol yemei chayav. The Torah here told us that a king has to have two sifrei Torah: one he keeps for himself, and one he carries and takes out with him. Why does the king need to have these two sifrei Torah? What purpose do the two sifrei Torah serve? So the Rambam says because he needs to be occupied with Torah study and the needs of the people day and night. A king, in order to be a legitimate king, needs to be engaged in Torah study in the morning and in the evening. The king has to study Torah diligently. So yes, the nation rests on the king's shoulders. And yes, he has more to do than there are hours in the day, but among his core responsibilities that he cannot neglect is studying Torah. And that's why the Rambam writes, the king has to have a Sefer Torah that he carries with him always. Why? Not just ceremonially or symbolically, but because the king has to have access to be able to study Torah. That's an essential part of his job description. It's an amazing, amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Our early, the founding presidents of this country maintained libraries. I was on a tour at the Library of Congress a few years ago, and uh, I forgot which early president it was, who his library was on display at the Library of Congress. And his library had a whole um, section of Hebrew of Medrash and Tanakh, of Hebrew, of Latin, of Greek. Talk about well-read and scholarly and an intellectual, and I'm not going to contrast it to anything um, current or past or future, but our expectations of our leaders are so different to what they were. So no matter which party he's from, a president today would be highly criticized. Imagine you reviewed the schedule of a leader today, and he said, yeah, I'd like to spend a good part of the day reading study and study. We'd say study before you get into office and study when you retire from office. When you're in office, you've got a job to do. Our taxes are paying your job. But the Ramam says Torah study is part of the core job of the king, which tells us something amazing. Torah study is our anchor in this world, talk about a hurricane of shifting wings, winds. The Torah study grounds us, it humbles us, it calibrates our compass, it guides the king through the difficult decisions, gives the king the courage and the moral convictions to do what is right. So according to the Rambam, not only is the king not exempt from Torah study during his years of service, he is obligated even more so that he has to have this Sefer Torah with him all the time. This notion, the centrality of Torah study to inform our lives, to inspire our lives, to guide our lives, to preserve our moral compass and to create a moral consciousness and to help us be reflective and introspective as we talked about. That if you don't have Torah, you're not alive and you're not breathing, also expresses itself towards the end of the Parsha. Because here we have the laws of Are Mikla, the cities of refuge. A person who kills by accident, who murdered by accident, flees to one of the Are Mikla. And the Pasuk says, V'chai, to live, understood simply means we protect him, we sustain his life. The vengeful family wants to take him out, he runs to one of the safe, one of the home bases, one of the Are Mikla, and he's safe there. But the Gemara Makos and Dav Yudam and tells us that we do more than just give him refuge. That when this person who killed by accident runs to one of the Are Mikla, Are Mikla, the Chai means we have to sustain him with life's basic necessities. So if you'd ask me, what does that mean? I'd say it means high-speed internet, direct TV, a smorg of 
tricolored gefilte fish. I need to uh, single malt scotch, find Cuban cigars. Everybody's going to define what v'chai means. That in this Yer Miklat, where he's finding refuge, we have to sustain him. So everyone would define it differently, but listen to how the Rambam, in the beginning of the seventh chapter of Hilchos Rotzeach, listen to what the Rambam writes. V'chai. You know what v'chai means? Talmud she'gol ol Yer Miklat, Megal and Rabo Imo. Shenemar v'chai. Ose lo she yichya. You know what it means to keep him alive, to sustain him? Not high-speed internet. And it doesn't mean a barbecue with access to delicious steaks. V'chai means spiritually. We're not alive if we don't have access to Torah. So if a person killed by accident had to go find refuge in the near Miklat, Talmud, Shegalalir Miklat, Megalan Rabo Imo. First of all, none of you ever kill by accident, please. I like my family, I want to stay home. But the Talmud runs to the Ir Miklat and the Rebbe goes with him. The Rebbe goes to the Ir Miklat, the Chavrusa goes to the Ir Miklat. Why? Because deprived, denied a Chavrusa, denied a Rebbe, a person will surely die. So critical, so instrumental is Talmud Torah, is access to Torah, that V'chai, it's part of the very definition of what it means to be alive. And without Torah, without access to Torah, one is literally, one is literally not alive. It's what we need. It's the air that we breathe. We don't think of it in that way, but one of the, one of the things our Parsha is communicating. The king has to be humbled. And remember, because they run that risk and that danger, that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, the king has to remember, has a safer Torah always. Torah grounds us. Torah is our anchor. Torah is our compass. Torah empowers. Torah enriches. Torah informs. Torah inspires. One day without Torah is like a day without oxygen. I don't remember where I heard it. I think it was on our fly in our base measures fly in last year. But he described, you know, real people who love Torah, they can't go to sleep at night if they haven't studied at least something of Torah that day. So you'll say, but you come in 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning from a hard day of work or from travel or from fighting a hurricane, you're exhausted, you haven't studied, you're really going to study in that moment? How's that even possible? You want to collapse from fatigue and exhaustion. You know, what if you didn't eat the whole day? You were traveling, you didn't have access to kosher food, you didn't eat an entire day, and you finally came home at one in the morning. Would you not hit the fridge on the way to your bed? Would you not make it through the pantry on the way till you fall asleep? Because you say, look, it's true, I'm tired. You know what I'm even more deprived of than sleep? My hunger. I need to eat something even, why go to sleep? You have enough backup, you'll make it till the morning. But no, we all eat something before we go to sleep because our appetite is so great, we can't imagine our appetite for food is greater than our fatigue that we eat before we go to sleep. The same should be true with Torah. If we haven't studied Torah that day, we shouldn't be able to go to sleep without studying some Torah. The king had to carry the Torah, and V'chai, the one who ran to the ear Miklat, we appointed someone to study Torah with him because that's what it means to be alive. Parshia describes the Kosovo's Mishnah Torah Zos that the king had two Torahs. And Rashi writes, Stay Sifrei Toros, Achashim Munachas Bebez Knozov, Vachashinachnesas Vyotsas Imo. One that gets hidden and protected in his palace, and one that goes out with him. So on this, you knew that we weren't going to get through even an evening Arab hurricane Parsha class without an Imre Chaim, without a Vizhnitzer. So the Vizhnitzer says, What does it mean? He writes two Torahs, one that stays home in the palace and one that goes out. Remez the Kol Ish Yisrael. We're supposed to all see ourselves as king. We are the children of king. We're princes and princesses. We are royalty. Torah 
Says the Vishnitzer, the image of the king having two Torahs, the Torah at home and the Torah that he takes with him, we are all royalty. We, like kings, we are a mamlechas koanim, we are a mamlechas, we are a nation of, of kings. The Gabe, in contrast to the world, we are the kings of the world. We are supposed to be carrying ourselves like royalty and modeling royalty to the world, which means that religion is not relegated to the home. But Beiskenazov, we have two Torahs. We have the Torah that informs and inspires our home and the Torah that comes with us to the gym, to the supermarket, to work, and to everywhere we go. That's where the mission really begins. We heard a speaker last year at APAC who described, he was a non-Jew and he described his church. The most inspiring sign he's ever seen at his church is on the way out of the church, there's a sign that says, this is where the mission begins, on the way out of the church. And the truth is a Jew should feel the same way. This is our ir mikla. We come to shul, it's our situation room. It's our ir mikla. We pour out our hearts to Hashem in tefillah. But it's on our way out that our mission begins. We have the one Sefer Torah, Bebez Knazov, in our home, in our shul, in our base medrash. And we have the second Sefer Torah, like the king, that we carry with us, that informs, that inspires, that we take with us wherever we go. Religion is not relegated or isolated to a religious uh, environment, but religion informs our molds, our very character, and it defines who we are, wherever we are, and at, and at all times. One last word, So the Pasuk describes about the king, his heart must not turn away. The Rambam, we've been quoting a lot of the Rambam. So the Rambam, the Rambam the writes, the purpose of the king is to unite the nation. He writes in Sefer HaMitzvos, to gather our entire nation and lead us as one. The Rambam writes, his heart must not turn away because his heart is the heart of the entire congregation. So that's why Hakel, when we join together after Shemitah and Sukkot and the Torah is read from, who is the one who reads it? It's not the Navi and it's not the Kohen, it's the Melech, it's the king. Because the king's heart should be the heart of the whole people. How? Because when a person is a uniting and unifying force, then his heart represents the heart of the whole people. And therefore the Rambam is telling us, the Pasuk is telling us, that the core job of a leader, in this case the king, but it's true for anyone in a position of leadership, elected or voted upon or self-appointed, anyone in a position of leadership, the leader within a home, a mother, a father, the leader in a community, the leader of a school, the leader of a people or a nation, the job of leadership is to unify, is to unite, is to bring people together, not to divide, not to place wedges, but to rally people around an ideal, around a vision, around a better future. That is the very person, purpose, that the person's heart, the compassion, and that drive to create a sense of unity should be at the core of what the leader, what the king is trying to achieve. I'm sorry we have to abbreviate our Pasha class for these unusual circumstances. We continue to daven for the people of the Bahamas, all those who are in the path of Hurricane Dorian. We're very grateful to the Ribbon Shalom for hopefully sparing us, and I wish all of us safety and security over tonight and tomorrow morning.